Again, bear with me this morning. My voice is, uh, is going to be rough, but we'll do the best that we can. Uh, let's all stand together uh, for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 14 this morning, verses 8 through 28. <clears throat> Acts 14, beginning with verse 8, we're going to read down through the end of the chapter. And uh, I'll ask that you would uh, join me on the second verse. I'll read the first one, you read the second. We'll continue every other verse, uh, working our way through the text. Acts 14 beginning with verse 8. <clears throat> now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus <coughs> brought oxen and garlands to the gates, and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave them without a witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven, fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged <coughs> But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, <coughs> they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had, uh, that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples." Father, we ask now that you would add your blessing to the reading of your word. Uh, I need your help this morning, God. I pray that you would give strength to my voice 
And uh, help me to be able to clearly articulate what it is that the Spirit of God has for us this morning from the text of your word that we're going to be studying. Pray that each of us would be challenged, uh, that we would learn and grow, that we would be more like you as a result of this time in your word. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I do have water up here. I, I'm trying to avoid uh, sipping it, but thank you so much. I appreciate it. <clears throat> I promise I don't even feel sick. It sounds way worse than it is, but... All right. Uh, this morning, we're going to be finishing up chapter 14 of the book of Acts. Those of you who've been with us, we've been uh, studying through this book as we typically do, working our way through books of the Bible here. And uh, we're in the midst of the book of Acts, chapter 14. Uh, by concluding this chapter this morning, we're going to be coming to the end of the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul and Barnabas have been traveling basically for the last two chapters, and that will bring us uh, to the close of that this morning. And the way we're going to cover this section today is by first reviewing what's taken place so far, uh, then we'll qu quickly run through the text uh, before us today, and then we'll get uh, circle back around and draw some principles from the text that I think will be applicable to us as a church. So try to hang with me as we review for a bit, and uh, keep this all together in your mind. It'll, it'll help, uh, help you when we step back and, and take a look at the trip as a whole later. To begin with, let's look at uh, Matthew 28. This is one of the, the key texts in the New Testament that we as a church have to keep uh, before us constantly in our minds. These were Jesus' last instructions to his followers. He said in Matthew 28, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them, to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So these are our marching orders as the church. This is what Christians are supposed to do. Uh, go win the world to Jesus. And then Jesus ascended back to heaven and he left us here to do this work through the power of his spirit. He says, go make disciples of all nations. Preach the gospel that, that Jesus died and rose again for our uh, salvation from sin. Uh, baptize those who respond to that gospel with repentance and faith. Uh, and then teach them to obey Jesus. The goal being that this thing would spread and spread until one day all nations would be in subjection to Christ, obeying him. The whole world uh, would accept Jesus as Lord and we would all be living as his subjects. That's what it means to go make disciples of all nations. Now, in this mission to disciple the world to obey Christ, we don't all have the same role. Uh, we all do have a role in this. All Christians have a, have a part in this mission. Uh, but we don't all have the same part. Scripture shows us this plainly throughout the New Testament. Some people were just uh, called to be faithful church members, uh, giving financially to support the work of the Lord, ministering with their gifts uh, in whatever way they were needed, raising children to obey Jesus, uh, influencing your family, your neighbors, your coworkers, uh, trying to, pe to reach people around you and influence them to obey Christ. Uh, and, th and that's really the call of most Christians, to be a light of the gospel right where you are. Others in the church are called to be leaders or teachers. These would be in the New Testament uh, elders, uh, what we call, commonly call pastors today. Uh, they are called to lead a church to teach from the Bible. Uh, pastors generally will stay in one place and help the Christians in that church to grow and to learn more of what it means to follow Jesus. 
But then among those who are gifted to lead and teach, uh, some are called for a unique task of missionary work. Uh, this is missionary, by the way, is not a biblical word. That's you're not going to find that word in, in uh, the New Testament. But essentially, that's what we see Paul and Barnabas doing here in Acts 13 and 14. Uh, they're not just normal pastors or elders staying at one church. Uh, they're church planters. They go from one region to the other. And God has called them uh, <clears throat> back in Acts 13 to, to leave Antioch and to establish churches in new places. Remember, Jesus said to make disciples of all nations. And so while uh, some have to stay in one place and another place and be faithful there, uh, others are called to leave and to go to new places in order to advance the gospel around the globe. And that was the calling of Paul and Barnabas. This brings us to Acts 13. Uh, this will all be reviewed for those of you who've been with us. Acts 13 verse 1 says, uh, There was in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So these are the elders or the teachers of the church at Antioch. While they were ministering, I'm sorry, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, uh, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So this is where God calls, uh, sets apart Barnabas and Saul and says, I have a work for them in particular <clears throat> to leave Antioch <clears throat> and to go uh, where the gospel has not yet been heard. And so verse three, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And this began uh, the first missionary journey of the apostle Paul. Uh, Paul and Barnabas left Antioch in Syria. Uh, they headed to Cyprus. They preached across the island of Cyprus. And then they headed up to the mainland here of uh, basically Greece, modern-day Turkey and Greece. Uh, in, in Scripture, this would be the region called Galatia. Uh, so when you read about the, the book of, to the Galatians, that would be uh, this region right here. And so they head up first uh, through uh, Italia and Perga. They head to Antioch. That's where they first begin. Uh, their work of preaching, and they establish a church there. You remember what happens in Antioch? Uh, they get a mixed response. At first, there was a lot of interest. Uh, the Sabbath, uh, the, that Sabbath day that Paul preached his first sermon, uh, explaining from the Old Testament how Jesus was their Messiah, and they needed to repent and trust in him. Uh, that, that caused a split reaction. Some people were very interested and, and received the gospel joyfully. Uh, others were enraged. And they violently opposed Paul and Barnabas and tried to kill them. Uh, verse 48 and, and following of chapter 13 describes this division of the people and their response to the preaching there in Antioch of uh, Pisidia. It says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing. And the leading men of the city uh, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. So in that first city of uh, Antioch of Pisidia, remember a different Antioch than the Antioch they left from. Uh, don't get that confused. So Antioch of Pisidia, uh, they preach there <clears throat> and there's this split reaction. Uh, among the Gentiles, there's many who are uh, saved and baptized. They begin a little church there. Uh, but among the Jewish people, they are rejected especially among the Jewish leaders uh, there in Antioch of Pisidia. They're very upset. They stir up persecution. And Paul and Barnabas are driven out of the city. And so they head down to Iconium, which is the next kind of major city on their path. They stop there. 
And they do the same thing. They're preaching the gospel, uh, showing the Jews from their Old Testament how uh, Christ is their Messiah, preaching to the Gentiles that they can be uh, followers of the true God as well. And they, do, they receive a similarly divided response in Iconium. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 14 says, At Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. So at first there's this wave of interest. People are receiving the gospel. They're being saved, uh, both Jews and, and Gentiles here. Uh, verse 2, But the unbelieving Jews <clears throat> stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. And so they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, <clears throat> granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Uh, but the people of the city were divided. <clears throat> some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. Excuse me. <clears throat> All right. Uh, we're down in verse uh, five here. <clears throat> Uh, when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers uh, to mis mistreat them and stone them, they learned of it and they fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. And so this brings us to uh, the text for this morning. So they've been, uh, they've been at Antioch, they were driven out, they go to Iconium, they preach there again, a divided response. Uh, they're driven out of Iconium. And so they head to Lystra, and that's where we're at this morning. Uh, Lystra, Acts 14, verse 8, they're here at Lystra. It says, now at Lystra, uh, there was a man <coughs> sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. The phrase in verse 9 is interesting to me, that Paul was looking at him and saw that he had faith to be made well. I'm not sure all of how that works, but somehow uh, Paul could uh, tell that he had a, a degree of faith, uh, that he could, that Paul had the ability to heal him. And so Paul commands him to stand up. <clears throat> and the man who had never walked sprang up to his feet and started walking instantly. Verse 11, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Now, very important to note here that they're saying this in Lyconian. I think Luke tells us that so that we know uh, Paul and Barnabas don't understand what they're saying. It takes them a bit, as we'll see, to realize what's happening. Uh, they might just think, oh, they're really excited about this, and they're, they're, they want to hear what we have to say. Uh, not so. They're, they're actually convinced that Paul and Barnabas are gods. Verse 12, Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, uh, because he was the chief speaker. And by the way, I just want to sh uh, throw in here one more side note. This is free. Uh, verse 12, notice that it says that by this time, Paul was the chief speaker among the two. It seems like uh, this has really been the case for the whole trip. Everywhere that we've seen them stop, Paul has been the one preaching. Uh, Barnabas seems to be sort of Paul's helper, his sidekick in a sense. And that really takes a lot of humility on Barnabas' part. Uh, Barnabas was a Christian long before Paul was. Uh, Barnabas, you remember, was the first one to accept Paul. Uh, when he had converted to Christ and tried to join the church in Jerusalem, uh, they were afraid of him. Uh, they didn't accept him right away, but Barnabas did. Barnabas received him, took him under his wing, and helped him 
uh, during those early years. And now Barnabas has recognized the fact that Paul is an apostle of Christ. He's been gifted and called of God uh, uniquely to this role. And so Barnabas apparently takes a back seat and kind of lets Paul take the lead uh, in this endeavor. It says a lot about the kind of man that Barnabas was. Anyways, back to the text, verse 13, the people of Lystra, they're convinced that Paul and Barnabas are gods in human form. And so verse 13, the priest of Zeus, uh, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowd. So they're, they're wanting to worship Paul and Barnabas and offer sacrifices to them. And all of this time, I imagine Paul and Barnabas are looking around wondering uh, what in the world is going on until uh, verse 14, they finally understand uh, what's taking place. I don't know if somebody uh, translated for them and said, hey, uh, this is what these guys are saying or, or what. Somehow they came to understand it. Verse 14 says, when Paul and Barnabas heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd saying, men, why are you doing these things? Uh, what are you thinking? And if you've been here through our series of the book of Acts, you know exactly probably why they're uh, so quick to shut this down. Uh, remember what happened to Herod. Herod was giving that speech and the people were calling out, oh, the voice of a God and not of a man. And, uh, and, and Herod didn't stop them. He ate it all up. He loved it. And God struck him instantly in the middle of his speech with tapeworms in his insides and he ends up collapsing, being carried off, and he dies. And so here, Paul and Barnabas, they're, they're in Lystra. Uh, the people are worshiping them as gods. They're starting to offer sacrifices. Paul and Barnabas say, stop, uh, stop. What are you doing? Verse 15, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things, turn from your idolatry and your paganism to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Uh, notice the way that Paul and Barnabas speak to these people in Lystra is very different uh, than how Paul had preached in the synagogues to a Jewish audience. When he was speaking to the Jews, he would show them uh, from their Old Testament scriptures how Jesus fulfilled their prophecies, how he was their Messiah and Savior, the, the promised king, the son of David. Uh, here, uh, Paul is not taking that approach because he's talking to non-Jews. The, the Old Testament would mean nothing to them. Uh, they're not familiar with those prophecies. And so Paul's approach with them is to urge them to turn from their idolatry to worship the true and living God the God who made the heaven and the earth. And he points to creation as a witness to this true God. Uh, observing creation should lead us to understand certain things about God. Uh, we, we can look around us and see the complexity of the universe and say, well, there, there must be a creator who designed all of this. And he must be wise and intelligent and loving, a powerful God to be able to make uh, all that we see around us. And so Paul and Barnabas Plead with the people, stop worshiping us. We're, we're humans just like you. We're normal people. Uh, but we have come here to tell you about the true and living God and to invite you to turn from your uh, false gods and, and worship the true God. Verse 18. 
Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. So the people were not uh, really listening to what they were saying. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. So these are the people who drove them out of those towns. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Now talk about moody people. Uh, one minute they're here worshiping Paul and Barnabas. The next minute they try to kill him. And so they, the Jews from Antioch and Iconium, somehow they had convinced the crowds that Paul and Barnabas were no good and that they needed to be killed. And so uh, they stoned Paul. Uh, you may recall this is how uh, Stephen, uh, the first Christian martyr, uh, was killed by stoning. And it was Saul, prior to his conversion, who was overseeing that execution. Now he is the one being stoned. Uh, stoning typically involved first being thrown off of a small cliff. Sometimes the fall itself uh, would kill the person, but usually not. Then there would be uh, two official witnesses overseeing the execution. So sometimes we think of stoning, we just think all the crowds would pick up stones and start checking them. It's not exactly how it worked. It was a little bit more organized than that. Uh, the first uh, official witness would push the guilty party off of the cliff. Uh, the fall would be something like 10 to 12 feet, roughly uh, the height of twice the height of a man was what it was supposed to be. And so they would be pushed off of that precipice. And then the second official witness to the execution would roll a large rock, almost a boulder, uh, off the edge of the cliff and onto the person, uh, aiming it basically on their chest. And often that, that first uh, rock that would fall would kill them. But if not, then the rest of the crowd, the mob that had formed around them, would pick up rocks and throw them until they were convinced the person was dead. It was a very brutal uh, way to die. It may be that in Paul's case, he was uh, knocked unconscious by a blow to the head, uh, but however it happened, they thought he was dead, he looked dead, and so they dragged him out of the city, assuming that that would be the last that they would ever have to deal with Paul and Barnabas. Verse 20, but the, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up <clears throat> and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. And so after being stoned, <clears throat> uh, Paul gets, gets right up and goes to the next city. Now, if I were Paul, I would say this would be about time to quit. Uh, time to go home to Antioch. I think once you've been you know, basically killed, uh, that's a good time to throw in the towel and head home. I mean, they had achieved some great things on this trip. Uh, some people had been saved in Cyprus and in Antioch of Pisidia and Iconium and even here in Lystra. Uh, why don't we just take our, our, our gains and, and head back home and call this a win? Uh, maybe at least take a vacation. Uh, take a week off, you know, just kind of lay low for a while. But that's not Paul's attitude. The next day, he and Barnabas head to Derby to do this all over again. Verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city in Derby, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So Paul goes to Derby. They preach the gospel there. Some people are saved. Then they go back to Lystra, you know, the place that Paul was just stoned and left for dead. They go back there. Uh, then they go back to Iconium and back to Antioch and Pisidia, the place where the Jews hated Paul so much that they had traveled down to Lystra to kill him. He goes right back through the middle of this danger zone. 
in order to strengthen the souls of the disciples, those Christian converts that had been made. He encouraged them to continue in the faith, even in the midst of tribulations. And of course, he was a living example of exactly what that looks like. Verse 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And so they go back through all of these cities that they had preached in. They spend some time with the churches they'd established, making their way back uh, eventually to Antioch in Syria. So this is all the way back home where they started the beginning of the journey back in chapter 13. And so uh, verse 24 and following say they passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And that basically concludes the first missionary journey, and they head back home. I'll show you this on a map. I know I've mentioned a lot of places. So Lystra is where uh, Paul is stoned. He's left for dead. The next day, they head to Derby. They preach here in Derby. Uh, and then they go back to Lystra, back to Iconium, back to Antioch and Pisidia. All the places they had already been preaching the gospel and, uh, and winning converts to Christ. And what they do there as they're going to these towns is they, they are basically doing discipleship. Uh, they're strengthening the Christians that were there. And, uh, and, and verse 26 says, we'll just go back over that for a second. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, that's, that's continuing on. Um, <clears throat> basically, they're, they're ordaining elders in the churches, uh, teaching, instructing, uh, encouraging the, the converts that had been made to persevere in their faith. And, uh, and then they leave, and they head back home to Antioch. Verse 26 says, From there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God, for the work that they had uh, fulfilled. So they go back to where they started originally. When they arrived and gathered the, uh, the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. This must have been quite a reunion after all they'd been through, uh, the time that they'd been away. Paul and Barnabas finally make it back home and uh, report to the church at Antioch all that had taken place. Well, as I said at the start, uh, not all of us are, are called to be Paul's and Barnabas's uh, in the sense of leaving our homes, going to new places as missionaries, uh, preaching the gospel, establishing churches. Most of us are called to do the work of Christ right here where we are. Uh, but there are still, I think, principles we can take from the example of Paul and Barnabas that will help us be effective as we seek to make disciples right here in Gary, Indiana. Uh, the location is different, but the goal is the same. We're doing the same work that they're doing, making disciples of Jesus. Our mission is to advance the kingdom of Jesus by making disciples, one person at a time, uh, preaching the gospel to the lost, and then teaching those who are saved to live for Christ, how they are to follow him in their day-to-day -day life. And so how can we be effective at this work? Uh, what can we learn from Paul and Barnabas that would be applicable to us as Christians and to our own church here? I think there are uh, <clears throat> five keys that I'm going to pull out from this text of effective discipleship. Uh, five things that we see Paul and Barnabas throughout this first missionary journey, I think, led to them being so effective in their witness for Christ. Number one, uh, boldness. Uh, throughout the first missionary journey, we see Paul and Barnabas speaking boldly for Christ. Uh, Paul in Acts 13 speaks very directly to the sorcerer uh, on the island of Cyprus. He goes back and forth with him. Uh, Paul gives the gospel to people in high positions of authority, like the proconsul of Cyprus. He's not afraid uh, to walk right up to the governor, basically, of the whole island and, and preach Christ to him. Paul also takes a stand in the Jewish synagogue 
I mean, imagine walking into a Jewish synagogue and telling all of the the religious people there that you need to abandon your religion and come follow Jesus. Uh, That takes some guts. That takes some courage. And Paul and Barnabas repeatedly, uh, throughout every city that they went, they preached the gospel with boldness. As you read Paul's letters, you'll find he regularly asks prayer uh, for things like utterance and boldness. Uh, Basically, he says, God, uh, give me the words to say and the guts to say it. I think most of us could use some boldness as well. Often we pray for opportunities to share Christ with someone when what we really ought to be praying for is the boldness to just do it. Uh, Second key to effective discipleship is perseverance. Uh, Paul and Barnabas were effective because they boldly preached the gospel and they did so with perseverance. Uh, They could not be stopped. didn't matter what the obstacles were in their path. Uh, They considered their lives expendable for Christ. They were not living for themselves. They belonged to Jesus. And so regardless of the opposition, they were going to continue doing everything that they could to make disciples of Jesus. If you drive us out of one town, we'll just go to the next. If the Jews reject us, we'll go to the Gentiles. Uh, If you stone us, we'll get up, uh, dust ourselves off, and go right back into town and do it all over again tomorrow. They just could not be stopped. And this is important because anytime you set out to do something for the Lord, you can expect opposition. You see this in the Old and New Testament. You see this throughout the history of the church. Uh, Satan will do whatever he can to stop Christians uh, from accomplishing the work of Christ. And the question is, are we going to quit? at the first sign of resistance? Or are we going to persevere and just keep working and praying and trusting the Lord to use our efforts? Number three, uh, third key to effective discipleship is flexibility. Paul and Barnabas did not do the exact same thing uh, everywhere that they went with a script, uh, step-by-step process of how we're going to build a church here. Uh, They had to do things a bit differently depending on where they went. In some places, they were invited Uh, to speak in the synagogues. And so they would go to the Jews and they'd uh, preach in their synagogues and things would go great and they would establish a church there among the Jews. In other places, the Jews rejected them. And so they would go to the the Gentiles, the pagans. And again, their their preaching was different. When Paul was preaching to Jews, uh, he would primarily show them Christ from their Old Testament. When he's uh, preaching to pagans, to Gentiles, he would show them Christ uh, and the true and living God from creation. And so they were flexible. In some places, they could preach openly and publicly. In other places, perhaps they were more secret and the churches would meet underground. We see that also in the New Testament. But it seems that they were just flexible to do whatever they could in each place that they were. Uh, Each location has its own advantages, its own challenges. And a program or method of of doing ministry that works well in one place uh, may not always translate well to another. And so uh, we ought to be flexible about all of that, to do what, whatever we can where we are to make disciples of Christ. Number four, fourth key to effective ministry was a commitment to long-term discipleship. Uh, you could say, maybe another way to phrase this is, they were committed to teaching uh, and growing people, not just winning people. Okay, what I mean by this is Paul and Barnabas, they were not content to just go into a city win a bunch of people to Jesus, and then leave town. No, they focused on long-term growth. They wanted churches to be established with elders in place that would lead and teach the church so that everyone could learn and grow together. 
And so those churches could then reach people around them in the years that followed, even when Paul and Barnabas had left. And we see how important this is to them by looking at what happens after Paul was stoned. I want to go back to this. They, they uh, stone him in Lystra, <clears throat> and they drag him out of the city, assuming that he's dead. And then Paul goes right back through the cities that he had already been to, uh, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, Pisidia. And he's going there, uh, instructing and, and teaching the converts that had already been made. He's ordaining elders in those churches, so there's leadership in place. So the, those that God has uh, gifted to teach and lead uh, were in positions to do that to benefit the church. This was hugely important to Paul, to strengthen those who were saved, not just to get the gospel to the lost, but to make full disciples of Jesus. They risked their lives, not just to get the gospel to them in the first place, they risked their lives again to go back to those cities uh, to further disciple and train the converts. They weren't content with the idea that these people were saved, so now we're good. No, they wanted to establish churches, strong churches with leaders and, and fully discipled Christians who could multiply and teach others. This is why Paul ends up later in his ministry writing letters to these churches that he's, he had been to multiple times. He writes them letters in detail with doctrinal teaching, uh, with practical instructions for how they are to live as disciples of Jesus, how they are to function as a church, how husbands should treat their wives, uh, the testimony you should have at work, all of that. He just writes it out in detail and sends these letters to the churches he had planted in order that they would grow deeper and stronger in their faith. And so there was a focus on long-term discipleship. And then number five, this is the last one I have, they were spirit-filled. This is really, I think, the key to everything. God blessed their efforts and used them to make many disciples of Jesus because they were spirit-filled. Remember how this trip started back in chapter 13. From start to finish, prayer and fasting characterized this effort. Acts 13 begins by saying there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. It's very obvious that Luke is highlighting this point. The Holy Spirit wants us to see the emphasis here of prayer and fasting. God blessed them and God used them to reach people in the cities they went to and to establish churches because they were spirit-filled. Prayer and fasting right at the start of the work. And then in chapter 14, verse 21, toward the end of their ministry, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So from start to finish, this effort was characterized by prayer and fasting. I think if I had to pick out one key aspect <clears throat> of this first missionary journey that made it so successful, it would be prayer and fasting. They were not doing this in their own strength. They were seeking God's presence, and God blessed their efforts. Excuse me one second. <clears throat> a 
a few weeks back, um, <clears throat> when we started uh, working through this missionary journey, uh, beginning in Acts 13, we talked at length about prayer and fasting. I would encourage you, if you missed that sermon, to look it up on the website. Uh, but we see throughout Scripture <clears throat> that fasting is something God responds to. Uh, fasting gets God's attention. Often great works of God are preceded by times of prayer and fasting. Sometimes fasting is done on an individual basis when someone has a need and they're desperate to get God's uh, help or, or guidance. Uh, they, they'll fast for a period of time, maybe a day, maybe three days, maybe a week. We see different time frames uh, throughout Scripture. But they go without food for that time and they pray for God to act in that situation. At other times, fasting is done corporately as a body. That's what we see here in Acts 13 and 14, where the church together is fasting. They're fasting and praying before they send Paul and Barnabas out on this trip. And then uh, <clears throat> during the church planning of Paul and Barnabas, they're fasting with the churches that they're establishing, praying for God's blessing on the church. And so, as I mentioned a few uh, weeks ago when we talked about this subject, I do feel led uh, to have our church fast as a group. Uh, on occasion. Well, I can do this all the time, uh, but I think it would be a good opportunity for us to do so here in the next couple of weeks. Uh, on Christmas Eve, we're going to be having our uh, Christmas Eve candlelight service here at the church. We did this last year, and uh, we're going to be passing out a lot of invitations, door hangers. We're going to be advertising on social media, all sorts of things, uh, trying to get people to come for that service. And basically, the, the whole goal of this is going to be to bring lost people to our church to hear the gospel. The gospel will be very clearly presented uh, during that service. And so I would really love for God to bring people to our church uh, this Christmas Eve who are in need of salvation to come be a part of that service. Uh, but I don't think that's going to happen uh, just by us in our own strength, doing whatever we can think of, and then leaving God out of the picture. Uh, we want God to bless these efforts. We want God to guide us to the people uh, who will be receptive, who will show up here in response to an invitation or a door hanger. And we want God to work on their hearts, uh, the people who will be in attendance, to draw them to Christ even before they get here. And so ultimately, my prayer is that this service in a few weeks will be used to make new disciples of Jesus who can join with us as a church. And so to that end, we're going to work. Uh, just like Paul and Barnabas did, we're going to uh, pour some work into this. We're going to, to, to knock doors and uh, give out invitations to family and friends. We're going to just try to spread the word throughout this community. Uh, but before any of that, I think it would be appropriate for us to fast and pray. Uh, the fasting side of this will be totally voluntary and totally anonymous. Okay, It's between you and the Lord if you'd like to participate uh, in this. <clears throat> I'm not going to give you any parameters. I'm not going to say Fast for this, this many days or this amount of time, that's completely up to you. The only piece of advice I'll give you is the same I gave you a few weeks ago. If this is your first time fasting, start with a day, maybe two days. Don't try to fast for a week uh, right off the bat. That's usually very unwise. Uh, but maybe you could fast for a day. Maybe you could just take one day and uh, decide, I'm not going to eat food today. Instead, I'm just going to give this day to the Lord. I'm going to pray uh, that God would bless our church, that God would bless our efforts to reach the lost here in our community, because our efforts at the work of ministry will only be successful if God is working through us. I love how the text we read today ends, verse 27. This will be the last verse we look at. It says, when they had arrived, but when they got back to Antioch and Syria, they gathered the church together and they declared all that God had done with them. They didn't just say, this is what we did, and this is the, the converts that we made. 
Now, they, they retold the events in such a way that it was clear to everyone that they understood God was the one who did this. God was the one who used us to establish these churches and to win these converts. God had done all of these things with them and through them. And so that's why we fast. That's why we pray. Because we need the Lord to move. I don't know what God is going to do in our future. I don't know God's plans for Lakeshore Baptist Church. But I believe he does respond to prayer and fasting. And a spirit-filled group of committed followers of Jesus can be used of God to do a great work in a city. And I would like to be a part of that.